0: Folks, what can I tell you about my next guest? This cat allowed himself to be adored, but not loved, and his success in show business was matched by failure in his personal relationship bag. Now, that's where he really bombed. He came to believe that work, show business, love, his whole life, even himself and all that jazz, was bullshit. He became numero uno game player to the point where he didn't really know where the games ended and the reality began. Like to this cat, the only reality is death, man. Ladies and gentlemen, let me lay on you a so so entertainer, not much of a humanitarian, and this cat was never nobody's friend. In his final performance on the great stage of life, you can applaud if you want to, Mr. Joe Gideon. Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Geneva. And I'm Tatum. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. once again for another episode have you been watching anything
1: uh good lately I have because listener not that you know this but this is Geneva and my first time I think in months actually taking a, a little <laughs> a bit of a week break in between. <laughs> a full week in between recordings um but yeah I have been watching um a few things so I think I've mentioned in the past that me and my cousins were going through uh, a rewatch of the Twilight Saga movies. So we finally concluded our rewatch this week with Breaking Dawn Part 2. And uh, I I was pleasantly surprised because the three movies prior to this <laughs> were absolutely terrible. New Moon, Eclipse, and Breaking Dawn Part 1 are all really not great movies. Um but this one, I don't know, except for the CGI baby, it it wasn't that bad. I felt like it actually had a plot that was interesting. It had um, you know, a rising action, a climax, a falling action, even though the climax is completely in someone's imagination and doesn't really count for anything. Wait, um, story structure in a twilight movie Are you <laughs> sure you watch the right film i but that's the thing i think this one does actually have some sort of story structure it has really interesting characters in terms of their powers and introducing them and all of these things so i enjoyed it and i think ultimately it gives a really nice conclusion to the saga for fans of the For fans of the story, and I remember when I was a huge fan at the time, I did find the conclusion to be satisfying, you know, looking back on the memories from movie one up until now and, you know, them in the credits showing all of the actors and giving them their moment, even the most minor actors that were only there for like five minutes. Rami Malek, never forget. Yep. Except for the original Victoria, who they just completely didn't acknowledge at all. Uh, I don't remember that actress's name, but I found that to be a bit strange. <laughs> but anyway, um, so, yeah, we finished Breaking down Part 2. It's, you know, the issues I have with the movie are just not with the movie itself. It's more so with just the content that comes from the book in terms of imprinting is really creepy. And, you know, lots of other things. You but would that's name just... my baby after the lockdowns monster? <laughs> Um, which is literally a quote from the book, so it's like a lot of the issues I think just come from the the original source material as opposed to the movie itself being bad. Um, except for the CGI baby, which is bad. Um, so yeah, I don't know, I, I didn't hate it. Is it a good movie? I kind of maybe a little bit, uh, but I didn't hate it. <laughs> um, it, it was a big step up compared to the previous three, I'll just say that. Um, And then also, Geneva, I thought you might find this interesting. So for the first time in a long time, I tried to rewatch the first Avatar movie. I couldn't get through it. Oh, interesting. James was, Cameron's Avatar, Yes. To be clear.
0: Yeah. Yes. I was like... You're like the biggest Avatar
1: fan that I know. I... Yeah. I couldn't get through it. I was like, this is this is pretty rough <laughs> so, <laughs> was I it just... is it the
0: story do you find it boring do you find like is it the characters Both. like what is
1: all of those things the story the characters it's boring <laughs> it's just like what <sighs> so I guess like the the impact and the the shock and awe of the CGI effects and being a part of that world have kind of worn off on me a little bit um yeah I've having that experience in theaters i I would
0: imagine, as someone who did not at the time see it in theaters, probably really helps to maybe carry over some some weaknesses that are in the script.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was a a young teenager and saw it in theater, you know, and that was a huge experience at the time. And that experience will always be special for me. Um, But watching it at home in 2023, when you've seen it like four times before, and it's been years, I was just like, man, the... There's not much going on here that's keeping me engaged. <laughs> so anyway, I thought that would be an interesting update for you. Um, and then last thing, I uh, speaking of movies that I rewatched that I haven't seen in a long time, I rewatched The Wolf of Wall Street, which I have not seen since I saw it for the first time in theaters as a teenager with my father. <laughs> I saw your letterbox Yes, on that
0: one. That was pretty funny.
1: Which was so awkward that literally, probably about 30 minutes into the movie, my dad got up and moved a few rows behind me (laughs) because it was so uncomfortable.
0: I cannot believe that you didn't leave. Like, I think if I was, I have not seen that movie to be clear, but if I was in an awkward situation where I was watching a movie with my dad, I would probably just leave.
1: (laughs) Well, it was one of those things where like, it was so awkward that we didn't even want to like acknowledge how awkward it was. So it was like, oh it's not that bad. We don't need to leave, but it was weird. Um, but anyway, so this was my first time rewatching that movie since then. I am no longer a teenager. I watched it by myself in my apartment. Uh, it's a great movie. I, I think, I think the writing is, I mean, the screenplay is very, very strong in my opinion. Um, and obviously my boy Leo's bringing it. It's a great performance on his part. I think Jonah Hill is fantastic. Margot Robbie is, is great. Um, it's just an all-star cast. Everyone's going all out. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very, uh, it's a hard movie to call enjoyable because the main character is so deplorable, uh, who's obviously a, a real person, um, but at the same time, it really is just a nonstop movie, and the reality of this person's life is so wild that you can't help but be engaged, even though you're disgusted in the midst of it. So um, I enjoyed it. It's it's a very good movie. I'm glad I rewatched it um, because, yeah, I, it's it's a great film, um, and I think I, I always enjoy watching a movie uh, made by Martin Scorsese that I enjoy because his movies are very are very hit or miss for me. Um, and when they're hits, they're big hits and this was a big hit. So it was a good time. Yeah. And then lastly, I'm still kind of in my documentary phase ish right now because it's just relaxing to sit back and watch documentary things. So we've learned that I'm obsessed with whales. Fun fact. Uh, I am also obsessed with the Egyptian empire. I don't know if you know that about me either. I did not know that about you. Yeah. When I was younger, when people always asked what What I wanted to be when I grew up, I always said archaeologist because I was obsessed with ancient Egypt and learning about um, all of the mummies and the calligraphy and all that stuff. I feel like a
0: lot of kids go through it. Like, I definitely went through. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I could call it a phase because I still love ancient Egypt stuff. But, like, that's a very... Very, yeah, relatable thing that for kids to go through. Like, um, yeah, go explore and in, go into a, inside a pyramid and explore, you know, and find a mummy's treasure and like. all yes. that
1: Yes. Yeah. And so I've been watching this National Geographic documentary on different aspects of um, like Egyptian um, archaeology in different parts of the country. And so it's been super fun. Uh, I just. I really like ancient Egypt stuff and I haven't really dived into it for a while. So that's been a good time. Yeah.
0: Have you explored the, um, I think the Chicago Institute has, Art Institute has some some oh, movies and things on display. Girl,
1: girl, of course I have. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've been many times. Uh, I remember when I was little, I don't remember if they brought King Tut to the Field Museum but there was some point when I was little and I was like super into I mean I'm still into it but when I was first really really made aware of you know archaeology from this country my mom took me to go see uh the Field Museum exhibit and I was like my head was in the cloud not in the clouds that sounds like I wasn't paying attention um I I was just like I was absolutely thrilled it was so fun um and I've been there many times since. So, yes, I have seen
0: it. Yeah. Well, um, when whenever you come to visit me in Boston, Boston the Boston Art Museum has a really great
1: Egy- Egyptian uh, exhibit as well. Ooh, cool. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that's what I've been watching kind of all over the place. But it's been a good time. How about you? Yeah, amazing. <clears throat> yeah, a little bit...
0: Uh, less, but uh, I've got a few things. So first, I've started a rewatch of the cop show, the British cop show Line of Duty, which I highly recommend. I've probably recommended it to you before Tatum, but it's a British show that's been on for, I think there's like six seasons now, six or seven seasons. You know, it's a British show, so so they're each five or six episodes a season. Um, But it centers on an AC-12, which is an anti-corruption unit, and every season they... Um, have a new officer that they're investigating to see if they are corrupt, to see if they're involved in some sort of organized crime or um, what have you. It's something a little bit different each time, but it's a really good show. It's very, um, it's by the guy who did Bodyguard, the show with Richard Madden that came out a few years ago. So similar, very propulsive writing, a lot of really good twists and turns. Uh, but the real draw of the show for me is the acting. There's the the three leads who are in the anti-corruption unit, and the growth of their friendship over the series is really fun to watch. But the real draw is the the guest stars that they bring on to play the the officers they're investigating. So first season, it's an actor named I want to say Lenny James, and he is just absolutely fantastic. And then the second season is uh Keely Hawes, who is, I'm realizing, one of my favorite British actresses. She's she gives one of the one of my favorite performances on television ever of all time in that show. So anyway, yeah, line of duty, good show. Um, second, I went to see a haunting in Venice in theaters. Um, so when we're recording now, that just came out a couple weeks ago. That is the new Kenneth Branagh. Hercule Poirot movie, which is not based on, it's not a direct adaptation of any Agatha Christie novel the way his last two Poirot movies have been. It's loosely inspired by one, but is very much doing its own thing. And honestly, it is easily the best of the three. I actually think this is a pretty good movie. It's um, very much Halloween oriented. It's very much a kind of a horror movie in addition to being a murder mystery it all takes place in this really beautiful crumbling mansion in the middle of Venice the whoever the production designer is they really deserve to get a nod that the the sets in this movie look absolutely stunning and it's just a really nice little thriller that's very melancholy there's a lot of themes about loss and regret and being haunted by the past and um you know, having your profession as Perot's, you know, dealing with death and dead people all day and thinking about concepts like the existence of God, and the existence of the soul, and is there life after death? And what is the meaning? You know, what is the meaning to our existence if there is no such thing as a soul? And like, you know,
1: things I wasn't really expecting this movie to get into. And you know, it's still like like the, mm -hmm. like the themes in Twilight, you know, (laughs) Edward's like, I'm a vampire, I don't have a soul. That's why I don't want Bella to become a vampire, because I don't want to send her I don't want to take away her soul. Exactly. Basically the same movies, right? Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Uh, same movies, <laughs> same themes as all that jazz, too. So, you know, they're all the equ-
1: equivalent. They're all the same movie. <laughs> let's all the be same real. Movie. <laughs> anyway, Stephanie all Meyer, say- living out there with the giants. <laughs>
0: Um. Yeah, all that is to say is that if you enjoy murder mysteries, if you enjoy like ghost stories, um, if you enjoy Kenneth Branagh, a really silly mustache doing a silly accent, it's actually a pretty good movie. I-, I would recommend it. Definitely better than the previous two. Um. Okay, and then the last one that I watched, which covers similar themes... But in a very, very different way, is a movie called Oslo August 31st. This is, I believe, the second in the Oslo trilogy by filmmaker Joachim Trier um, and his collaborations with actor Anders Danielson Lee. The third one I watched last year, which is a movie called The Worst Person in the World. Excellent movie. This movie is also excellent. It is also extremely depressing. (laughs) Um It is about a young man who gets out of rehab. Um, He's kind of temporarily let out. He's not quite finished with his rehab program, but he's temporarily let out so that he can go and do a job interview in Oslo. But what he really wants to do is to go around to his family and his friends from his prior life when he was on drugs and kind of see if life is still worth living you know he's he's extremely depressed about the way that his life has gone and you know it's kind of a circular these things seem to have pre-existed and led him to become hooked on drugs and then those drugs led to this very self-destructive um, lifestyle and now he's you know, seeing the end of his program and the the potential of a future life, but not really sure if he actually, it's a life he wants, because the prospect of picking up those pieces just seems too difficult. Um, So I won't spoil exactly what happens, but it is really beautifully told, beautifully shot, beautifully acted. And I was, it's a 90 minute movie. I was gripped the whole way through. But again, you know, you finish it and you really are like, oh, wow, I need to go and lie down somewhere <laughs> and <laughs> not talk to anyone and maybe like, I don't know, put on a Looney Tunes cartoon or something <laughs> to get me out of this space. <laughs>
1: That's like me with BoJack a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah.
0: I would say, you know, watching Oslo August 31st and all that jazz in the same day was not a great idea. I would say if you watched Oslo August 31st and an episode of BoJack in the same day, it may
1: kill you. You might die. You might die. <laughs> yeah. Your your brain may simply melt from sadness. If uh, Geneva mentioned the worst person in the world, if you want to see another excellent Joachim Trier film that is very existential but doesn't leave you feeling like you want to die. I would recommend I would yes. recommend that one. <laughs> uh it's a it's a perfect absolutely perfect film um that asks really interesting questions but doesn't leave you with a massive massive hole in your heart. Yes. Uh so yeah
0: yeah there's sadness to that one too but it's much more about that experience of being a young person a young adult Mm -hmm. trying to find your place in the world and so there's a lot of hopefulness to it as well
1: also Anders Danielson Lee is just perfect he's just he's one of the most incredible he's such a captivating actor Mm -hmm. I would love to work with him someday I would not be able to direct him I don't think because I don't know I mean I know he speaks English but I don't know. Maybe we could make it work, but I'm like, I don't. Anyway, that'd be cool yeah. to work with him. Did
0: you know that he's a doctor in his, his full-time profession? Of, We've course probably talked about this. of course he is. Of course he is.
1: What the heck? Yeah. Just how? some people. Just, just
0: how? Just too perfect and talented. What in the world?
1: All right. Good for him, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> good for him. Let me just like make the world a better place. And on on my weekends, go off with my friends and shoot incredibly moving <laughs> movies that are perfect examples of the cinematic form.
1: I wonder if him being a doctor makes him be more interested in movie roles that have to deal with death and the purpose of life. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I don't know. All right. Well, let us move from one deeply existential (laughs) topic to another. Today on the show, we are discussing the 1979 musical drama, All That Jazz, directed by Bob Fosse, starring Roy Scheider, Jessica Lange, Anne Ranking, and Leland Palmer, yes there is an actress named Leland Palmer uh we spoke about
1: is that a weird thing
0: Twin Peaks who's Leland uh Laura Palmer's dad his name's Leland yes okay okay (laughs) sorry (laughs) my amusing self aside did not uh did not work for you I just I
1: couldn't I I heard Palmer and I was like but who's Leland though
0: Yeah. No, Leland Palmer is Laura's dad on Twin Peaks, who is a very crucial character to the show.
1: Okay, well. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not saying that for your benefit. I know you know that. I haven't watched that. (laughs) I haven't watched that show in years and there's 500 million characters. So Ray Wise. Ray Wise is Leland Palmer. Gotcha. Uh, But Leland Palmer is also
0: an actress in All That Jazz. okay (laughs) sorry (laughs) I thought that was very amusing that
1: is kind of funny
0: (laughs) right (laughs) thank you yeah I I kind of looked at the cast list and then I had to look at it again I was like what
1: wait who is Leland Palmer though oh that's the the
0: actress who plays his wife yeah
1: gotcha okay this movie was just left and right me being like oh you're from that movie you're from that (laughs) movie there was a point in this probably about I don't know, five minutes in where I was like, oh, that's the guy from Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It took me a while to be- I was like, what do I know you from? And then once it clicked, I was like, oh, that's the guy from Jaws. <laughs> well, and fun fact,
0: I don't think I threw this into my summary um, later on, but the original casting for Joe Gideon in this movie was actually Richard Dreyfuss, the other guy from Jaws. And what? then he had to pull out. And so they got Roy Scheider instead. <laughs>
1: What in the world?
0: It would have been a very different movie if it was Richard Dreyfuss. Probably still would have been good, but I it would've been very different.
1: Very different, interesting.
0: All right. So, um yeah, so earlier we did an episode on cabaret. So we did speak a little bit about Bob Fosse, but just to kind of kind of re-summarize for anyone who may not have listened to that episode. So Bob Fosse, for those of you who are not familiar with American musical theater, he's one of the most influential, well-known figures in kind of 20th century American musicals. Uh, Alongside his creative partner and wife, Gwen Verdon, he pioneered a style of dance characterized by stillness and sensuality, isolated body parts, awkward turned in knees and jazz hands. Fosse choreographed and or directed numerous Broadway classics of the mid-20th century, including Pal Joey, The Pajama Game, Damn Yankee, Sweet Charity, Pippin, and the show that would eventually become most synonymous with his name, Chicago. Uh, After appearances in several musical films over the years, in 1969, he turned to film directing with Sweet Charity. That movie was not a success, but three years later, he won the Best Director Oscar for Cabaret. For the rest of his career, Fosse alternated between directing and choreograph- choreographing for the theater and for film. Uh, Though undeniably brilliant, Fosse was also a deeply complicated man whose reliance on pills and sex wreaked havoc on his personal life. As shown in All That Jazz, Fosse carried on numerous affairs a long time- alongside his long-term relationships, and he frequently slept with the female dancers in the shows he directed. All That Jazz, which is written by Fosse alongside Robert Allen Arthur, is the semi autobiographical tale of a successful director choreographer forced to confront his personal failings, very much in the style of Federico Fellini's film Eight and a Half. Whereas the protagonist of Eight and a Half is dealing with a creative block, all that jazz was inspired by Fossey's experience of having a heart attack while in the midst of two intensive projects, editing the film Lenny, about the life of stand-up comedian Lenny Bruce, and directing the Broadway show Chicago, starring his estranged wife Gwen Verdon. Fossey underwent open-heart surgery, and while in recovery, he began thinking about a new project that would explore the prospect of death in a very personal way. The script that eventually resulted was a thinly veiled portrait of himself. So thinly veiled that uh, reportedly the original draft actually used the names of all the real life people they were based on. So Bob Fosse became Joe Gideon, Gwen Verdon became Audrey Paris, Nicole Fosse, his daughter became Michelle Gideon, and so on. Um, it is worth noting that Anne Ranking was Bob Fossey's girlfriend at the time of his heart attack, and so by playing the character of Katie Jagger, she was basically playing herself in the role. However, Ranking was forced to audition for this part. I did not see anything online about why this is. This could have been a studio note, but it's also possible that Fosse was just being a dick. Um, All That Jazz tells the story of Joe Gideon, a musical theater director struggling to bring a new show to the Broadway stage while simultaneously editing a film about a stand-up comedian. To push through the stress, he relies on a daily routine of and alcohol, cigarettes, and one-night stands, regularly lying to his curf- current girlfriend and neglecting to spend time with his daughter. The first half of the film cuts between Joe's frenetic schedule and scenes of Joe in a darkened backstage set, talking frankly with a beautiful woman in white about his past, his failings, and his attitude toward art. About halfway through the film, Joe suffers a massive heart attack and is taken to the hospital. At first, he continually flouts the advice of doctors to slow down and rest, but as he begins to realize the seriousness of his condition, he begins to struggle against the prospect of death. Through a series of hallucinations, Joe processes his regrets as elaborate musical sequences in which the women in his life scold him about his self-destructive lifestyle and the pain he has brought on them. Joe's too-late discovery that he wants to live eventually turns to resignation with a final blowout number, Bye-Bye Life, in which Joe bids farewell to the world and is welcomed into death by the woman in white. All right, so um, in terms of my experience with this movie, I first saw this movie um, <clears throat> last year or the year before. It was while I was doing research for my master's degree, um, my my senior thesis. I don't know if I've talked about it um, on this podcast before, but my master's dissertation had to do with musicals and musical movies specifically. And so there was just a period where I was watching a lot of musicals I'd never seen before, filling in a lot of gaps. And this is one of those movies that's always on lists of best musicals ever made. Um, so I thought, well, you know, I've got to see it. I like Cabaret. <laughs> we'll see what it, we'll see what this has to offer. I love uh, Roy Scheider. Always excited to see him do things. And I love this movie. Um, it... I really love Fosse as a director, as a film director. I think the way that he uses editing is really interesting. Um, it weirdly, on rewatch, brought to mind Christopher Nolan. I was like, if Christopher Nolan ever made a musical, which I don't think he ever will, <laughs> and I don't necessarily think he should, but the way that Fosse cuts across multiple timelines in order to create a story and kind of, you know, cutting to a particular moment in one timeline at one in in the midst of something else helps form an impression that he wants to uh, create in order to bring you to the next point in his story. You know, that's something that is is done frequently in Oppenheimer and, and movies like that. Um, I just think it's really interesting. I, I love the use of editing in his movies. Obviously, his choreography is brilliant. And then I just find the way that he decides, the fact that he chose to tell this story and that he does it in such a simultaneously, um, it, you know, there's like, there is self-indulgence and self-justification in this movie, certainly, but there's also a lot of self-loathing and a lot of, let me just bear everything that I know is bad about myself and I'm going to put it up on the screen how, what a bad person I am. And yet also it doesn't seem to have necessarily made a difference in the way he lived his life. And that sort of self-reflection self and self-flagellation I just find so interesting. And it, you know, the ending of this movie, the way that Joe moves from, you know, through the stages of grief <laughs> as is kind of a recurring um, uh, motif throughout the movie, and he moves from denial you know and anger and bargaining, and he moves into acceptance, and he moves into this well, what does it mean to accept the fact that I'm dying and accept the fact that I've always lived, thinking that I have more time and now I don't have more time? I just find that to be a really interesting theme um that I always enjoy seeing explored on screen. So, yeah, um, I found this movie really compelling, Um, found it similarly compelling on rewatch the final shot, which um, I hope we can, you know, talk about at least briefly at some point um, is particularly I think it's just so well timed. It's such a brutal gut punch to cap it all off. So, yeah, and I think there's a lot to talk about, too, with the idea of being an artist and transmuting all of your regrets and struggles and fears into art and the positive ways that that can happen, and also the negative ways that that can happen. So, yeah. Um, Tatum, I know this was your first time seeing this movie. I know it was a difficult watch for you, so I do apologize for that. But, um, yeah, your thoughts on this watch of the movie?
1: Well, first of all, I wasn't aware that you'd seen it for the first time so recently, um, but that's that's super interesting, because um, I know you you loved Cabaret, and so I figured you would have, like, been rushing to see this right away after you saw cabaret
0: i think to be honest this movie is not super easy to get hold of i don't think it's on any streaming service right now so i think i may have yeah i think i may have wanted to watch i still it. never
1: got it from the library it never came in from the oh, library really? yeah i couldn't find it well you found it but yeah, yeah. <laughs> i found it
0: but yes um yeah but yeah i think i may have wanted to watch it right after cabaret and i just had trouble tracking it down until the, within the last couple of years
1: yeah I probably would have given up too like if this was a movie that I really wanted to watch but I didn't have to watch it for this podcast I would have been like well I've done all I can so I guess I'm just not gonna watch it because I can't find it anywhere in the library is not giving it to me um yeah so uh, yes Geneva said like she said I had never seen this movie before um it It was not necessarily a movie that was on my list to watch. Um, I I was aware of the movie. I knew that it existed. Um, I knew that it kind of had a a high reputation. But just for whatever reason, I wasn't itching to see it. Um, I think I mentioned on our Cabaret episode that for some reason in my mind, Cabaret, All That Jazz, and Chicago were kind of all the same movie in my head. and it's
0: understandable.
1: Yeah. And Chicago was the first of the three that I had seen, and I don't like Chicago. And so because of that, I wasn't particularly itching to see uh, Cabaret or All That Jazz. But then after absolutely adoring Cabaret and thinking it's a brilliant masterpiece, I was looking forward to watching All That Jazz. But all that being said, this movie was not at all for me. I think it was a movie that it's it's very well made. Um, it's very well acted. I think, obviously, this is, as Geneva said, recognized by probably the majority of moviegoers to be one of the best musicals ever made. Um, and so I kindly resign my opinion to the global <laughs> decision to have this be one of the best musicals ever. I'm sure everyone else is right. But to me, I found this movie to be incredibly offensive, um, I've mentioned before on this podcast, particularly when I think Geneva, you and I were both rewatching Mad Men around the same time. I really, really struggle with movies and television shows that, um, that portray of women. Um, and Bob Fosse is already a problematic person in my, I don't even think it's in my opinion. He's not the best guy. And I think he's very obvious about that with this movie. And so, it was really hard for me to see over an hour of someone just very extremely poorly treating women. Um, that's very difficult content for me to engage with. So much so that I normally avoid things like that because they're so disgusting to me and um, so I'm aware that the movie is not trying to glorify that. I don't think that Fossey's trying to be like, oh hey, look at me. I'm a cool guy. I'm a I'm a ladies man. Like I'm a player. Yeah. yeah, like the movie is very much about how destructive his actions are. Yes. Like he's not glorifying it at all. Um, but that doesn't make it any easier of a pill for me to swallow because this content and this theme in general is extremely triggering and difficult for me. And because that was such a strong theme in the first 30 to 45 minutes, I couldn't really recover from that throughout the rest of the movie. I think it pivots a little bit and it focuses less on how much of a dirtbag he is as time goes on and it gets more introspective and him battling with himself as opposed to seeing very explicitly the destruction he causes other people. Um, but I I couldn't get past the first thirty minutes. I found myself thinking of a Clockwork Orange, which is a movie where I think it's a brilliant film. I think it's very well made. I think it's a good concept. But the beginning of that movie is so offensive to me that it's hard for me to recover and watch the rest. I did I did watch the rest of a Clockwork Orange. I also watched the rest of this movie, but I find it to be in a similar lane for me. Um, I also struggle with, and I don't have an answer to this, it's more of a philosophical type of question, I guess, that I think a lot of people and artists in particular ask. But I really struggle with artists who are really bad people and just trying to, just that question of like, when do we separate the art from the creator versus when do we hold the creator accountable for their actions and not glorify their art? And I think about, like, if Roman Polanski made a movie about how much of a shitbag he is, I probably would be disgusted by that movie. And Roman Polanski and Bob Fosse are different people because Bob Fosse is not abusing children, which are two different things.
0: Yeah. To my knowledge, Bob Fosse is not accused of raping anyone.
1: Yes. Yes. So obviously, they are different types of abuse of people. But it's still just hard for me to think about this of like, how much do I want to empathize with someone who is so hurtful to others? And how much do I actually feel like wanting to enter into his headspace and his life experience, given how poorly he treated people? And for me, particularly because it's a triggering point, how he treated women, which is really hard for me to um engage with. So um yeah, I I don't like I said, I think I think this movie's very well made. I think it's well acted. I think the editing is very interesting. It's very typical Bob Fosse. Um I see influences of of his choreography and his editing in movies like Moulin Rouge, which is a fantastic film, in my opinion. I know some people don't like that movie. Oh, I love Moulin Rouge. It's a great film. I love Moulin Rouge. Um but yeah, ultimately, this movie was just hard for me. Um, there were a few sequences I really liked. I really liked his, um, for lack of a better phrase, I really liked his sex dance. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> the erotica sequence? <laughs> yes, I I thought that was absolutely beautiful. Um, And he definitely has a creative eye, and I think... I think he has the legacy that he has for a reason. He's clearly a very gifted, talented person. Um but yeah, I, I struggled with this on a moral, ethical, and Tatum personal trigger level. <laughs> yeah.
0: Can I ask you a quick question? This is not like, you know, to draw equivalents or to call you bad or anything like that. I'm just very curious because you mentioned rewatching this movie and liking it. How would you compare the portrayal of Joe Gideon in this movie with the portrayal of Jordan Belfort and in Wolf of Wall Street and how he treats women.
1: Well, I think I was actually literally thinking about that uh, before starting this movie. I think the difference is that I don't think the Wolf of Wall Street is asking us to empathize with his situation. I think Wolf of Wall Street is very explicitly like, this man is a really bad person, period. And, and that's it. Um, and obviously it adds humor to it, but I don't think, I, I know you haven't seen Wolf of Wall Street, but that movie does not glorify his behavior at all. It's very much so just like, he is a bad person. Do not live like this. And this movie, I don't think it glorifies Bob Fosse's experience, but I do think there is an angle of like, we want you to empathize with his experience and where he's come from and his inner struggle and things like that. So that that's the difference for me. It's not just like, yeah, Bob Fosse sucks. It's like he sucks, but also he's, I don't know. Um, And also the ways in which he sucks are, are different for me than the ways in which he sucks in Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Interesting. I was, I was just curious. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a valid question. Like I was, literally thinking the same thing so
0: yeah all right well um let's talk through this movie a bit um i was thinking we could kind of maybe talk through the first kind of divide it in half and talk through the first half pre-heart attack and then the second half when the sort of existential um moments start ramping up um so as i mentioned this movie is about a director who's working on these two projects simultaneously. So it starts off with this really, to me, iconic opening. And that's mainly because I've just rewatched it on YouTube, like, probably two dozen times, Um, (laughs) where um, it keeps cycling through him doing the same routine where he takes some dexedrine, um, he puts some eye drops in, he has his classical music that's playing, he has like some Alka Seltzer, um, like it's it's rough living, you know. It's very much like let me just get myself going for one more day, and then we see the rehear the not the rehearsals, the audition process for his next show, and this song called "On Broadway" sings. It's all wordless. It's just these people going through these rehearsals, um, to audition for him and his producers. Um, I think this is a really good opening scene in really showing Joe in his element to me and showing what he is good at. And he is genuinely a very, very talented director, like the way that he interacts with um, the different dancers, the way he kind of he gives rejections to them personally. He gives them notes. He um, instructs and teaches like he's he's clearly very experienced. And this is clearly the place where he feels most comfortable Um, We do kind of set up at this early point that he has some issues with women because there's one particular woman that he singles out to put in his show, even though she is tone deaf, as the producers tell him, and she can't sing. But he's like, yeah, but her legs, though. Um, Did you have any thoughts on this opening sequence? And then the um, his morning routine keeps playing throughout the first half of the film. So we just keep it's kind of a way of resetting us to, you know, new day. He's continuing to do the same thing that he's doing before. It's kind of getting worse and worse every single time. But this is the the routine that he's found to keep himself going until he can't anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll just go through because I took I took a fair amount of notes with this movie. So so I'll just go through my first few notes. But the first thing I wrote down was this is such a 70s movie. I feel like it just it looks and feels so 70s. Um, which is a vibe that I don't mind. So I liked that it came out very strong with that. Um, I also wrote down that Bob Fossey's choreography is so distinct and so identifiable. Just the way, even if it didn't even if it wasn't edited in the way that it was, you would still know that it was him because of the movements and all of that. Um, so it's just it's just so uniquely and obviously him, Um, and that combined obviously with the with the editing is just very very Bob Fosse so I guess those are kind of my thoughts I think it's just very um, very clear that this movie is made by him which I think is impressive whenever directors can do that kind of right out the gate Um, yeah and and I think it's a good introduction to uh, to the character of Joe as well Um, I don't necessarily know that I would agree that he's a good director in terms of the notes that he gives his his performers uh but I guess maybe that comes on a little bit more stronger as we get as we move later into the film um but yeah that's that's kind of what I've got for that opening part yeah we definitely need to have a conversation about the notes that he
0: gives during the rehearsal scenes later on because I'm I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are um I'm still developing my thoughts, but yeah, I'd love to have a conversation about that as someone who did a lot of musical theater in high school. Um, Let's see. So we also in this early scene, we also are introduced to the fact that he has an ex-wife and a daughter who he was supposed to take that weekend and he completely forgot and she's disappointed. So, you know, setting up the fact that he is a father, but he's kind of a neglectful father. Um, And then we also set up early on. And this is like, it's so hard to really talk about any one plot thread or scene in this movie because it is all so intertwined with each other like this. So much of this movie is just a series of montages, a montage that kind of goes into another montage or just, you know, we're cutting between kind of three different things at any one time. But we have these other sequences that are happening in this um, backstage, what appears to be like kind of a darkened backstage. And there's this beautiful woman who's dressed in white and she has this veil and she keeps asking him questions. And his manner and demeanor in these sequences are very different. And, you know, we eventually learn that this woman is the angel of death, basically. She's credited in the the ending credits as Angelique, the angel of death. So he is talking very (laughs) explicitly, you know, his to his this manifestation of his his existential questions and his demeanor when he talks, when he like answers her questions is, I think, very interesting because he's just so open and he like kind of doesn't care in a sense. I don't know the way that she asks him things and he'll just be like she'll be like did you actually mean it when you said this thing to that person he's like I don't know not really you know I I I I say I tell people I love them all the time but I just do it to get what I want you know he's so frank about who he actually is in these sequences and I find that really interesting
1: can I just say that uh something that I think would be (laughs) helpful for you to know during this discussion um I had a similar struggle in this movie. Uh, I had a struggle in this movie that was similar to your struggle with uh, Miracle. All of these dancers looked the same to me. I really struggled to identify. Also, he has so many freaking girls. I'm like, I don't know which one is your girlfriend. I don't know which one is your ex-wife. Is the angel, I was like, is the angel one of these dancers? Like, I literally, it was it was very hard for me to differentiate between all of the different women in this movie. So just a heads up regarding that. Okay, good to know. I, I had no idea who they, who they were. I'm like... I mean, hopefully at least
0: you were able to identify that the woman in the big white hat and veil is like like who, that, that she is different from the others, right?
1: I think I figured that out about halfway through. <laughs> um, like there's that whole scene where... Uh, where Joe's daughter and even to this point, I don't even know who it is. Joe's daughter and some woman are in some white apartment somewhere and they're doing this whole dance routine <gasps> yes! and going up and down the stairs. Oh, I that I'm like, I don't know who that woman is. I don't know where they are. I, what, okay, cool. So that
0: that's Katie. That's his girlfriend. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So in this first half, we just have kind of a, a series of a sequences of him, like struggling to do these shows and also being terrible to the people around him so he has a particular dancer victoria porter who is not very talented but she's very beautiful and he invites her over and she's like i want to be a movie star and he's like you're never going to be a movie star are you still willing to sleep with me and she's like okay and
1: they sleep together um yeah i uh... yeah i didn't know who that was I was like, is that his girlfriend for the rest of the movie? I don't know. Like, yeah. Well, his, um, Katie, his actual girlfriend, walks in on them in bed, which is. Oh, that was Katie?
0: Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Probably not the first time that that has happened. Yeah. Katie's the one with straight brown hair. Okay. Um, we also learn a little bit about his backstory in that he grew up as a dancer in burlesque clubs, which is Bob Fosse's real backstory. Um, I don't know if this particular incident had ever happened to them, but in the movie we see this one incident where a bunch of strippers kind of menace him right before he goes on stage, and it is very humiliating uh to him. Um and yeah, it's you know, it's a little bit of context, not excusing, but certainly context for this is why this man has a very messed up idea about sexuality and how to treat women in healthy relationships. You know, he had a very messed up backstory. Um, Let's see what else
1: happens in this first part. Um, Well, we get introduced to the fact that he's editing this stand-up special or movie or whatever it is, um, which I found to be very interesting. I, I found it strange that in the beginning... This sequence of the stand-up is so long and I find, I don't know what this says about me and Lenny Bruce. I'm sorry, Lenny Bruce, <laughs> but I found this really long sequence. I was like, this is just not funny. This is obnoxious. Like you're screaming, you're shouting. uh, this is so long. Please stop. And I really, I, I liked how it was kind of interweaved throughout the rest of the movie. I wasn't expecting that to happen um, But this opening sequence was just very, very long. I mean, I, I wish I had timed it because I'm like, we don't. I like the introduction of kind of showing that he's this director who, you know, they gave him four months and he's taken seven months and he's still not done. And he's like changing it. And then they're like, God damn it, it's better, you <laughs> yeah. know, which is such um, a great
0: moment because it really shows his like. I mean, this is his perfectionism is such a crucial part of his character is that he he always believes there's a way to make it better. And he has this sort of vision of how this thing is supposed to be perfect in his head. And he just gets frustrated because he just can't get there. And so he takes all this extra time. But he is genuinely talented. And so when he takes that extra time, it does get better. And the studio executive who's like yelling at him and yelling at him, like you're taking like you're going way over budget, way over schedule. Like we're having we're on triple overtime now with these people. Like we can't be paying them all these things. And Joe Gideon's like, yeah, we'll watch it now. And the studio executive watch it's like, damn it, it's better.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I'm curious what you thought about that opening stand up sequence. Like what 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 do you think about that stand up? Like, did I, I understand that it's important in terms of weaving it throughout the rest of the movie? But I just thought it was really long in the beginning. I didn't think we needed all of that.
0: Um, I don't know. I I don't think I particularly noticed it being. It it is definitely long. I don't think I particularly noticed it being too long because there are other things that are happening on screen at the same time, which is establishing like the the different editors that he's working with and his relationships to them and how he's kind of he's really a driver and he's really you know he just keeps making them run it again and again and again and um some of them are fine with that and some of them are not and they are you know very irritated with how much of a perfectionist he's being on these really what seems to be tiny little tweaks um so yeah i didn't feel like it went too long although it it definitely is long and it does set up because the that monologue that the comedian is giving is this monologue about the five stages of acceptance that you're going to die which becomes is played in audio later in the film and becomes very important so it is kind of setting up things that are going to be used later.
1: I I agree I just don't think we needed to watch him tell stand-up for Minutes upon minutes. I feel like we could have just had the, the sequences of him explaining the five stages of grief and some like little bits of filler to give it context and maybe the I'm dying sequence with a little bit of context. But I don't think we needed to watch the entire stand up <laughs> bit for so long. Like I, I I like what it establishes and like I said I I, I understand why you know because it's interwoven throughout the rest of the movie. Um, In a a rather brilliant way, in my opinion, but it was just very, very long. I was like, you're telling this, like, I don't need to watch this whole stand-up special. I'm here to watch this movie, not to watch a stand-up special. Yeah. But that's just because I guess it didn't tickle my fancy in terms of humor. I was like, I don't, this is just annoying. Yeah, it's definitely
0: a more old-fashioned style of
1: humor. So, yeah, I, I don't disagree with you there. Um,
0: I feel like it would be funnier if we had seen the full context, if you were just sitting down to watch a stand-up special. And so they'd build to this point, mm-hmm. but you're very much coming like what seems to be toward the end of a stand-up.
1: Yeah. Um, and then another thing I just wanted to bring up, because you were kind of talking about this opening, you know, section of the movie. Um. There was one moment that <laughs> I was so upset when... Um, I, I think you said it was Kate who walks in on. Yeah. Katie uh, is his girlfriend who he okay keeps cheating on. Okay. So she, she comes in and she sees him cheating on her and her response is, I'm sorry. And I was like, girl, you do not need, like, why are you apologizing? You don't. And, and I think, I think it, it sets up an interesting dynamic between the two of them. But at the same time, like, again, it just triggers that thing within me of, like, this is how he treats women, that to the point that even when he's cheating on them, their automatic and first response is to apologize to him. And I'm like, I hate that so much.
0: I really hate it. Yeah. Yeah, their dynamic is really interesting because it's it's very much like... Like, to a weird extent, Katie seems to accept the fact that if you're going to be with Joe Gideon, he's going to cheat on you. And that's it's almost like she's apologizing for walking in because it's embarrassing. But she's just like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't realize you were with someone (laughs) like it's but it's clearly hurtful to her, too. And there are moments where Joe is talking to the angel of death and, and death keeps asking him, like, you know, why do you think Katie puts up with all of this? And he's like, I don't know. Like, I I treat her terribly. Like, he's so aware of this. And yet he somehow just can't seem to get out of his own way. There's that great scene where Katie's like, I guess she's almost trying to test him in a way. You know, I think it's a little bit of that dynamic of like, I can accept the fact that you cheat on me. I just want to know that you actually do have feelings on for me and so she tells him that she's thinking about taking this six-month job where which would take her away for you know half a year and he doesn't really respond and so she goes and calls up another dancer and is like hey want to go out to dinner and then joe gets all possessive and miffed and um they end up having this conversation where he's like i give you everything that i can and she's like yeah you give me a lot of things. you give me a lot of material things, but you're also she says really, I wish you weren't so generous with your cock um and yeah, I don't know the this dynamic between them where it's like he really feels like if he as long as he's upfront and honest about his failings and then is trying to be generous in the other ways that he can, he's just like, this is the person who I am, and you just have to accept it or not and she's like. I think she sort of knows that about him, but also wants more. She's like, "I just want to love you," and you like, you won't let me. And so they're at this impasse, and I don't know why she puts up with him for as long as she does. But
1: because he's an abuser and he manipulates her, and she's in a place mentally where she can't necessarily, she doesn't know how to get out of the situation that she's in. I mean a lot of people mm-hmm. get stuck in relationships like that and it's really sad, but it's because the man has the power. And at least in this sort of circumstance, in my opinion with Joe, like he very clearly has the power. He's the choreographer. He's the, he's the man who's in charge of the show. He's the one who has allowed her to be in a relationship with him and she should be grateful and da da And it's interesting that, you know, I mean, we all go into movies or anything in life with our own particular biases. Um, but I find it interesting that for you, when you see her walk in and she apologizes, your the, the way that you think about that is her almost feeling like awkward or uncomfortable, or like, oh, I'm sorry, I walked in. Whereas for me, I read that as, you know, she looks hurt and she looks like she's apologizing that I'm sorry I'm not giving you what you are what you want. I'm sorry I'm not enough for you. Like I'm really trying, but apparently it's not enough and maybe I should try harder and that's why you're going to other people. And that was my reading of it. And so when we have that sequence later where she's like, you know, you're giving me these things, but like you said, I wish you weren't so generous with your cock. Like I just want to love you. And it's like, it's just that disgusting circle of her being like, I'm... I'm the one who's not enough. I'm the problem. And it's like, girl, honey, sweetie, no, you're not. Like, He's the problem. Ah,
0: (laughs) just bothers me. Yeah, yeah. I think the way I read the I'm sorry is her kind of saying, like implicitly acknowledging there is this understanding between us that you're going to cheat and we're just not going to acknowledge it. And so me showing up is like a faux pas in that sense, um, which is obviously a very unhealthy and, like you say, abusive place to be in because clearly that's not the relationship that she wants, but she feels like that's the relationship that she has to agree to in order to be with this person that she wants to be with for some reason. There's also, um, so later, a little bit later on, um, there's this really sweet scene where um Katie and Katie seems to take on kind of a secondary mothering role for Michelle like she really seems to have a really nice relationship with Michelle who is is Joe's daughter and the two of them choreograph this little dance that they do for him to um, I think it's like right when his his movie is screened and the screening reviews are not good and so it's kind of to cheer him up and it's just this this really adorable little scene of the two of them and she keeps on coaching Michelle and how to do it and like she's so supportive of Michelle and it's like all of this love and support that Joe himself is not really giving Michelle but Michelle so much wants to have a relationship with Joe and Katie really wants to for them to be some sort of a family and they finish the number and you can see on Joe's face like he's really broken up like he looks like he's about to cry like it's i think there is that element of like seeing pe- someone do something so pure for him when he knows that he does not deserve it that I think is just a really great little character beat yeah I love that scene and I love how you know what a little bit of a momentary reprieve it is but then all that weight of like they're doing this thing for him that he does not deserve he knows he doesn't deserve it and yet he can't find it in himself to change that I think is so you know such an essential part of who he is as a character
1: yeah and um Just another, another thing that I noted during this kind of, you know, sequence that we're talking about, I don't know, as you said earlier, there's a lot of montages in this movie and it's kind of hard to keep track of what moments blend into others. Um, But there was some montage throughout this sequence um, after he, uh, after he gets discovered by uh, Katie sleeping with that other woman, where it's just a bunch of some, I think it's, it's some sort of like a bunch of negative things happening in terms of drugs and, and arguments or whatever. It's like a bunch of negative things that are happening. But all the while, there's like this really happy string symphony music going on. And I think that just kind of goes further into like the editing that we were talking about before. I mean, just the fact that through certain instances in this movie, the fact that there are certain music choices that are made that are kind of antithetical to what you're actually watching on screen in terms of like, it it creates this sort of um, conflicting emotion in terms of I'm watching this, but this music is telling me I should be feeling this. So which way do I actually feel? And I think that those choices throughout the movie are very um, just compatible with, with, the themes of what this movie is like trying to tackle. So I thought that that was a cool addition in terms of just like the art of how this movie is put together. I don't really, I kind of despise the story itself, but like I said, I think it's a very well-made movie and I think that that's another example of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The the use of contrast and ironic juxtaposition is so important to, I think honestly, to Fosse's career as a whole and the themes that he was always interested in, but to this movie specifically and this idea of beauty and death, you know, there's that moment where he's Death keeps asking him kind of they're doing kind of like the word and response thing. He goes, Death says women and Joe says hope, which is very interesting. Um, and then Death says beauty and Joe just points at her. And so like that, that tells you something about how Joe conflates death with beauty and beauty with death. And this idea of art being able to kind of take our most terrifying, you know, terrified and remorseful and ugliest parts of ourselves and create something that is beautiful. But is in that beauty, are you papering over what is ugly or are you redeeming what is ugly or is there kind of both going on in a sense um let me see what else happens during this first part oh gosh so much um so we have the ongoing um thread of this like (laughs) really cheesy show tune about flying in a plane that his producers bring to him and he's like he and his ex-wife are, like, looking at each other, and they're both like, oh, gosh, this is terrible. We can't do this. But then Joe's like, actually, let me see what I can do with it. And so he creates this number that is – like, there's a first half where it's just – it's that number, but it's been very fossified, you know, it's got – all the choreography you expect, it's, you know, it's a little bit sexy, it's a little bit racy, it's kind of fun. The producers are like, yeah, this is great. And then he has this part two where it's just basically devolves into softcore porn, but also beautifully choreographed. Um, I don't know, <laughs> like, I feel like this is him and the the producers who show up throughout the film, which we need to talk about at some point. I feel like this is him just like satirizing broadway and kind of satirizing his own effect on broadway in a sense of just you know let's just kind of take this thing that's really cheesy and innocent and family-like and just make it really dirty and (laughs) sexy and just push the envelope as far as we can possibly go and the producers like their lines are so funny they're like um You're like, oh, man, we just lost the family audience. Now Sinatra's never going to record this song, (laughs) which I laughed out loud about. I
1: thought that was really funny. Any thoughts on that whole um, subplot? So to be honest, I didn't necessarily make the connection that this was initially starting out as some interpretation of like an idea about an airplane that was presented to him. I didn't I didn't get that um because the guy who
0: writes the song he sings it for them and he's like going all out and it's all about flying in a plane and at the end the producer's like maybe we can get a commercial tie in with an airline <laughs> like of course the producers just want to think about it in you know money terms like what sponsors can we get
1: yeah i i didn't connect that to the to the sex dance um <laughs> but yeah i don't know i mean i think like i said in the beginning i i'm just gonna call it the sex dance because I mean that's basically what it is it, it is what it is Um, I, in my opinion, I don't know what this says about me, but it's my favorite part of the whole movie. I mean, I think it's, I, one of my favorite art forms on the planet is dance. I, I mean, Geneva, we've talked about this, we've sent each other, I think YouTube playlists before (laughs) of our favorite dances to watch. Um, I just, I love watching dancing and I love how it can make you feel something just through movement. And, uh, so for me, I just thought that, it was so incredibly beautiful. I didn't necessarily think about it in a deep way in terms of like, what is this representing and what does it mean? I was kind of just enjoying that. It was absolutely beautiful to watch, um, the choreography, the way the bodies are interacting with each other, uh, the way that they bring out the smoke and everyone's like smoke. (laughs) Um, it's yeah. I mean, I just think it's really beautiful. It was very, um, It was just it just felt like Bob Fosse having a moment of just being like, you know what, I've always wanted to make a beautiful choreography that's explicitly about sex and uh, I'm going to die. So here it is. Um, so it almost felt like something he'd always wanted to always wanted to make on his bucket list. Yeah, but he, you know, was so tied into making things for family audiences. Yeah, because Chicago is it. such a film for such, <laughs> such a show for such family a, audiences. Very much so for a family audience. Um, as is cabaret. You know, he's just totally making things for the family. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't really have any deep thoughts regarding it. I just. I, I think it was absolutely beautiful. I would, that's probably going to be the only sequence from this movie that I'll ever watch again, because it's just really captivating. Um, again, I don't know what that says about me, but I think that dance is just a beautiful art form and the way that bodies can move and they're just so fascinating to watch and especially when they're lit in different ways. And um, yeah, I thought it was beautiful. Um, so Yeah. Yeah. Well, prior to the performance of this song, we get a
0: really great scene where Joe is... um, Joe's like, he feels like he's blocked in his... Um, his ability to choreograph, you know, he teaches the, the dancers a move and they do it and they do it fine, but he just doesn't like it. And he goes off and he goes and talks to his ex-wife. And I really love the scene between the two of them where his ex-wife is practicing a number f- for her own, possibly even choreographing the number herself. And he's just like standing there talking to her and she's like dancing around him. And then every once in a while, she's like, here, help me up or here, help me like stretch my leg a little further, or like doing all these things. And, It just gives you, I think the the chemistry between those two actors is really great in giving you that sense of these are two people who have been working together for so long and they have these really complicated feelings about each other. There is still love there. There's also a lot of hate and frustration and conflict, but they know each other so well. They know each other's dance style. They know each other's bodies. They know each other's abilities and like, you know she knows him. She knows that he always gets to this point where he feels blocked up. And that's right before kind of the dam of inspiration breaks, which it then does. But they're also arguing about, you know, the fact that he was a terrible husband who cheated on her constantly with women whose names he can't even remember. And yeah, I don't know. I really love that scene and the the chemistry between them, the way that it's choreographed and blocked where there's just so much familiarity between the two of them um do you remember that scene any any thoughts on it
1: yeah so I wrote down on my notes conversation while dancing five out of five stars (laughs) 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 that's that's literally what I wrote down um, so, yeah, I, I also liked that sequence. Um, I thought, I mean, for the same reasons that you said, the fact that it just shows this familiarity between the two of them and her kind of like, haha, yeah, classic Joe, like, I kind of don't really care, <laughs> you know, because I so kind of backtracking a little bit, um, because this whole sequence, uh, th- there, there's a lot going on here. This movie moves very quickly. Um, but,
0: and we're kind of going all out of order
1: yeah so um, prior to him walking into this room to have this conversation with her we have this whole scene where he's um, directing his performers in choreography and things like that and in my opinion we have this uh, another disgusting moment between him and a woman where he basically like is yelling at her while she's dancing and then like backs her up against a wall almost and is basically telling her like, you're a bad dancer. Not only can I not make you a great dancer, I can't even make you a good dancer, but I can make you a better dancer. And all of these things, like again, abuse, like he, he's literally like tearing her down while she's dancing. And then once she starts crying, he swoops in and kind of gaslights her and is like, actually, but like, you should admire me because I'm going to make you a better dancer. And then she's like, oh, right. What an honor for me to be here and have this man make me a better dancer. It's like a disgusting backhanded compliment. And then after that, he goes into this room with, uh, with his ex-wife and then he's feeling lousy. And he's like, oh, I want someone to bump up my ego. because bu-. I'm like, dude, you just destroyed someone else's experience and made them cry. And now you're feeling ho-, ho like ho-hum, woe is me. I need to go to this other room to have this person make me feel better about myself. I'm like, you suck and I hate you and you're a terrible person and I hate watching you on screen because you're awful to every woman that you encounter. Um, But that then leads up to this scene where... Again, it's it's that conflict of like, it it shows how terrible of a person he is, but then it also shows like, it gives hints as to why he might be that way, or he's actually insecure. And I'm like, I get that, but also that doesn't excuse your act. Like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have empathy for you because you're walking into this other room and showing that actually the reason you're lashing out is because you're insecure. I'm like, I don't care. Like, that's not an excuse. You're a terrible person. Um so anyway I I just I kind of lump that whole thing together of like starting with his like helping direct his his performers through choreography and then straight up abusing and gaslighting this woman to then feeling oh my gosh what well, was me I'm a I'm hate myself to then going into this moment where he has this a little bit more transparent honest conversation with his ex-wife um where it ends and she asks herself I don't remember specifically how it's phrased but she's like basically like why can't I quit you type of thing Um, she's (laughs) like you're you're gonna drive me crazy crazy. yeah (laughs) yeah um yeah but yeah I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of that I, I mean I guess we're kind of talking about all of it but that That beginning part that leads into this yeah no that's interesting because
0: i actually had a very different reading on that scene and on his behavior in that scene i think there are things he does wrong but i actually see a lot of that scene him being a pretty good director um so the the woman that he singles out that scene is victoria porter who is the dancer he chooses at the beginning who is She's not the greatest dancer. She's not a very good singer. He basically chooses her for this show because he wants to sleep with her, which he then does. But because she's not a very good dancer, she's not doing very well in this scene. Like, she's genuinely not very good, as good as the other people in that scene. And she recognizes it. And that's why when he has her do it over and over again, she starts crying. And so what he does is he comes over and kind of takes a sidebar with her and he tells her, listen, listen. I'm gonna be honest about your ability. You're not. You're not great. You're probably never going to be great. But I can work with you, and I can make you better. And that's what he does. Then in the next scene, it shows her doing the n- the number again, and she does it better. And he is encouraging to her. He tells her, "It's better," and like. It is one of those complicated things where it's like the only reason she's in that show is because he's a disgusting human being who wanted to sleep with her. He didn't genuinely choose her because she's right for the job. But he does also want to make good art and he does believe that, you know, he has this ability to work with people and to, you know, he has this perfectionism in him to and he can, he can improve things, and I think that's what he does with her in this scene. Again, she's only there because he wanted to sleep with her. But now that she is there, he is working with her. And I don't think he gaslights her. I think he's telling her he's telling her the brutal truth. I mean, it's maybe not the certainly not the most tactful way to put it, but it's something that they both realize. And he's just stating what they both understand. And he's also stating I can make, I can make you a better dancer. And then he. Does that.
1: That was my reading. That's that's really interesting because I see it as literally flat out abuse. Um well, this is again, but... this is like
0: <laughs> redux of our conversation last week where, you know, I'm like, I don't know about this coaching style. It seems pretty abusive. And you're like, no, that's just normal. <laughs> to me as a musical yeah. theater person, I'm like, I don't think this is that unusual.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, even you talking about him being a perfectionist and wanting to make great art, I'm like, I get that. But he's treating her like an object in order to meet that end. Like he doesn't care about her at all. He's literally like, you are a object that is here that I can manipulate in order for me to reach my own selfish ends of creating beautiful art. And whether that means I need to make you cry, if I have to make you cry, I'll do it. If I have to be brutally honest with you, I'll do it. If I have to make you feel confident, I'll do it. If I have to tear you down, I'll like, none of it feels genuine. It feels like it's, it's, it's just, it's abuse to me. It just is. And I can't, I can't see past it. I mean, I just see, you know, again, cause I have, a, I have a personal bias towards men treating women certain ways. And it's like, this is a young woman who wants nothing more than to be a great dancer, and I, I just like why? Why would you take a young person who's uh, like why would you treat them that way? It's just not okay. Um, and and you know I know it happens. Stories like this come out all the time from not just dancers but athletes as well. I mean, dancers are athletes. Dancers are athletes. I'm going to say that right now. Um, but like. This comes out all the time from people who are younger and they admire a coach or a trainer or whoever and they exploit them because they're in a position where they're like, I want to be better and I believe that you're the person that I can take you there and the person in power knows that they're the one in power and they take advantage of that and they treat you like garbage because they know you won't leave and I don't think that that's okay (laughs) and I think that that's what's happening here in my opinion, whereas... I mean, we don't need to go into, like, miracle versus all that jazz because whatever, to each their own, right? But I feel like that is something where, like, he, I don't know, he he's not terrorizing them emotionally and making them cry and then turning around and be like, oh, no, but I believe in you. It's like, no, I've believed in you all along. I just want to push you to, like, understand who you are and what you're capable of and what you can do. And he's also not bringing them onto the team because they don't deserve to be there because he wants to sleep with them. Like they have a deserved respect for him. They've tried out, they've qualified, they deserve to be there and he sees something in them and wants to help them reach their best. I don't know. They're just very different scenarios to me because this starts from a place of her being an object. I think it stays in a place of her being an object. Um, But that's, just my own opinion. Yeah, I mean, I um, I think we'll
0: just agree to disagree with this. I'm definitely not saying that it's an example of him being and you know a great person because nothing and he does he does in this movie is untainted by um, bad ulterior motives. I just think in this particular moment he is demonstrating he is you know not tactfully but honestly acknowledging the fact that she's not measuring up but also giving her the the intention that she needs in or and telling her that like i am willing to continue working with you and to make you better and then he does and when he does that i think you see on her face that she feels she knows that she's done it better like she comes away after that rehearsal feeling like i was able to achieve something that i wasn't able to achieve before
1: i think that's true i i think that she does feel that way but you can come out of an abusive scenario feeling that you've done something better and you know what I mean again this is this is not me saying that you're wrong this is just me trying to because I feel like I'm fighting an uphill battle here. I feel like everyone else in the world is like no, and I'm like I'm trying to I'm trying to justify where I'm coming from, sure. so people don't think that I'm just like some hoity-toity person who's like, oh, this movie, blah blah blah. You know, it's like I'm trying to explain this comes from a place within my soul. <laughs> no, I'm that's not fine. just yeah trying to be that. person. We can agree to disagree. But even like in this same in this same sequence, you know, when he's kind of yelling at all of them. Um, there's this one point when I think everyone kind of stops. I think he tells everyone to stop dancing or something cause they needed to take a minute. And there's this shot of all of them looking up at him, like four year olds, like looking at their parent, like, Oh my gosh, you're perfect. Teach me. You know, not that necessarily four year olds think that way. I don't know, but they just look up so expectantly just like they're waiting for his approval. And I feel like, that just further establishes which gets into what I was saying before about like his relationship to women and why people might you know be with him or whatever he is in a position of power and the people that are underneath his power will do anything to get his approval and that in and of itself is uh, um it 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 paves the way for someone to be abusive and I think that Given what the film has established regarding like his character and his drug use and his womanizer, all of those things, I think that all of that lends itself to this is a person who abuses their power and therefore abuses people. Sure. And I don't think it can be avoided that he abuses people. And I'm not saying that that's what you're saying. Yeah. I don't think you're saying he's abuse free. <laughs> well, yeah,
0: because I'm not disagreeing that he abuses his power. He certainly does. I'm just arguing. Right.
1: I don't see that happening in this very specific instance. Right. And I'm saying I see it all over the place, which is why like every single interaction he has with a woman, that's how I see it. And that's why this movie is so difficult for me because every interaction I'm like you are abusing this woman right now. And I hate this. <laughs> anyway. All
0: right. Well, let's let's move on to another section. Um let's see
1: um oh oh no no I wanted to say uh mm-hmm. one other thing it it was um something that came before this uh sure I really I thought it was very funny this sequence where uh because we start getting introduced a little bit at this point to the fact that like Joe is sick he's getting worse and each day he's coughing more and blah 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 we have a moment where he He goes to see some bullshit doctor. I don't know what doctor this is. The doctor who's, like, dying of, like, cancer He's, like, hacking up a lung. He's, he's like, hacking up a lung. And he's like, nah, he's fine. Send him back to work. Yeah, exactly. You're now insured. And everyone's like, okay. It's like some, it's like the producers hired some bullshit doctor just to say he's fine so that their asses are covered, even though, like... He's clearly not fine. Very clearly... I don't think this doctor is qualified, yeah. or even if he is qualified, he's not honest enough right. to, to actually say what's going on. But I thought that was very funny that he was like, I mean, he was just, he sounded like he was going to die. Yeah. He was coughing so
0: much. At first, I thought that he was coughing just during the examination to cover up Joe's coughing. But no, he just keeps coughing afterwards. He's just... Yep. And yeah, I think he might even be smoking a cigarette while he's examining Joe. I think he too. is. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah clearly not the most reputable um let's see can we also talk about I wrote down I mean we don't have to talk extensively about it but I wrote down this one line maybe you can remember at what point oh no I remember at what point it happens it's um the 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 moment when he's with his daughter in the dance studio and they're doing that really, I was hoping,
0: yeah, I wanted to talk about that scene.
1: Yeah. That really beautiful dance moment. And, um, his daughter's basically asking him like, why didn't you get married again? What about that girl? Who's an actress in Australia or wherever the heck it is? Like, what about this person? What about this person? And, uh, which is interesting that his daughter is very aware. Uh, but anyway, he has this one line where he says, his daughter's going to
0: be so, she's going to need so much therapy.
1: Yeah, um, but he says, I won't get married because I don't dislike anyone enough to inflict that much suffering upon them, and I thought that was interesting. I'm like, well kind of self-aware but also you can do that in dating too well yeah like he
0: asks why she doesn't he doesn't marry katie which is the woman he's marrying and he says well yeah she's she's too nice like i couldn't do that to her basically so again it's that mix of self-awareness but also a complete unwillingness to actually do anything about the his own personal failings
1: also it's this this weird statement that he's like oh yeah i don't dislike anyone enough to Marry them and put them through that I'm like well you could also say I don't dislike anyone enough to date them You yeah, like, could just stay away from it's women It's not altogether. exclusive to marriage <laughs> Like maybe you just shouldn't
0: do this period But okay <laughs> I do really love that scene Like they're The character of Michelle um, You know she's not she's the the daughter who she loves her father but he's very absentee and so the moments that she has with him she really seems to adore him and he does seem to genuinely love her too it's just you know she's like 25 on his list of priorities um and then even when they are hanging out with each other in this scene it's like they have to be he has he still has to be working like she can only be with him if she's participating in his work and so he's like designing this new choreography and she's kind of helping as a stand-in um he's like lifting her up and trying different moves and everything and it's very sweet but um yeah also tragic because they he's just so involved and wrapped up in his work and he's just not able to actually have any sort of human relationship to his daughter that does not involve his work in some way
1: i really liked uh the actress who played his daughter, I thought she gave a really great performance. I don't know how old she is. She looks like maybe 12, 11. Yeah, something actually
0: like that. I should look that up. <clears throat> I'm not quite sure. But she,
1: she gave a very good performance.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I liked her a lot too. I liked when, um, later when she does her own little number and she's like really off key. <laughs> like she's a very good dancer, um, for her age. She's not a great singer, but, um, she's like, she's, She's so sweet, you know, and um, you know you can see the talent that she has that came from her parents, but there's just so much desire to love and be loved there that is not you know she's still young enough to have the hope that her father is gonna be there for her, and you can see in a few years, probably that would have if the events of the movie had not happened that would curdle um all right, we need to move on to the second half of the movie um so there's a cast, like a table reading for the Broadway show. And I thought the scene was very well done. Basically, Joe starts to have his first heart attack. And so they all open up their scripts to start reading. Audrey reads her first line. Everyone in the room starts laughing because it's some sort of pretty lame joke that she reads. But all of the sound suddenly fades out. And the only sound that you hear is Joe making noises. He's like tapping a pencil and he's lighting a cigarette and he's kind of like dazed and not sure what's going on and then all of a sudden it's over and everything fades back in and he's just he's a complete mess. Um I thought that was that scene was very well done. Um and yeah then Joe is just rushed to the hospital and the doctors are like you're having a heart attack you need to rest for two to three weeks at least and Joe's like no 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 no. I'm fine doctors don't know anything. I should get back to work
1: and they are like no Doesn't he say you guys are the ones making me sick? He's like, I was fine before I got here. Now I'm here and I'm like, you're there because you're sick. You didn't get sick because you went there. What are you talking about? You've been hacking up a lung for like
0: weeks already. You just had a heart attack. Like, what what are you talking about? Um, There's a really great um, juxtaposition where the the producers and Audrey are all announcing to the cast that the show has been postponed for four months. And Audrey's just like, don't worry, guys, I just left Joe in the hospital and he's fine. He's already ready to get back to work and everything's gonna be great. And she and Paul are like improvising this like chipper little number about a hospital. But then it's cut with Audrey actually at the hospital. And she's just she's just sobbing. You know, she is so scared. And Yeah, I don't know. I was very. Who's Audrey again? Audrey is his wife. His wife or ex-wife? Um, well, ex-wife, estranged wife. We don't know if they actually got a divorce, but she's the Gwen Verdon character. Gotcha. And she has kind of light brown hair that's very curly.
1: Gotcha. There, I did make one note during that scene when they're kind of trying to make light of his case to the to the um to the performers or the ensemble. And I just wrote down that this was so relatable. But one of the guys goes, there goes my apartment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Like, yep. I
0: know. And that one guy who's like, that one guy who's like, I turned down a job in TV for this. I'm such an idiot. And you're just like, oh, gosh, I'm so. Yeah. Yep.
1: And then the producers are like, well, we're
0: going to try and like. We're going to try and get you temporary jobs. We'll even lend you money. And then the other producers
1: like, "Uh, no, ixnay on that. And he's <laughs> no, like, uh, never mind. Uh. <laughs> yep. I thought that was funny. And unfortunately, relatable. Yeah. <laughs> um. Not not that I've had a, a boss get very ill, and that's been my first response. But just in terms of like anything happening that somewhat threatens your job, And it's like, well, there goes my boss. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I
0: can't can't expect any sort of security coming from the producers. Um. This is also the part where the producers, well, they have this like accounting meeting with um Wallace Shawn is in it. Um. Little cameo from Wallace Shawn. Um. But they realize that if joe is to die before february 1st all their and they don't put on the show all their costs because of his insurance all their costs will be recouped and they'll make a profit of like half a million dollars and so they're like hmm interesting duly noted (laughs) but also they start talking to this other producer played by john lithgow um and it's kind of like a f- Lord Farquad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I saw him and I was like, Lord Farquad is in this <laughs> cool. Look like that. Um Well, he is Lord Farquad. I thought Lord Farquad was um I'm blanking on his name. I will look it up. No, he's Lord Farquad. Oh no, you're right. Okay. Yeah. John Lithgow. Yep. But uh anyway. <laughs> yeah. There's this like a couple of really funny scenes where it's just like they're both like, oh, yeah, we're so sad that Joe's in the hospital. Yeah, man. Um, Oh, it's just I hope he gets back to work soon. Anyway, do you want to look over this number? Yeah. You know, like I'm just as a friend. I'll make a couple notes. And oh, that's so nice of you. And like, you know, clearly they're gearing up for Lucas to be in place to replace him. Um, And then later on, when Joe seems to get better, they're like, oh, yeah, we're so glad that Joe is better. And Lucas is like, yeah, I'm so happy about that. Um, Here's my notes, you know, use them, don't use them, whatever you want. And they're like, yeah, thanks for being such a great friend. <laughs> anyway, it's just definitely a little, a little satire and uh, theatrical producers there.
1: Is it satire, though? <laughs> no, probably is not. Is it satire? <laughs> <laughs> Very thinly veiled reality. Spoken by the person who's currently been on strike for the last (laughs) six months. (laughs) But it is like, um,
0: you know, you, you talked before about how Joe very much sees his dancers as kind of you know, just assets and objects for him to manipulate in the service of his vision, which I don't think is a very uncommon view for directors to have over the people that they're directing. But at the same time, the producers kind of, there's almost a reversal here where now the producers are looking at Joe in the same way. You know, he is this asset who's made them a lot of money in the past, but if he's having going through troubles, like, they're not going to be there rooting for him. You know, he's cost he's gone over budget, he's gone over time. If they can get someone in who can do the job faster and cheaper all the same to them or if they can cancel the show altogether and the show just won't exist and all these people will be out of work but they'll make money like that's totally fine with them and so there there is this very like um exploitative view i guess of who joe is and what his career means to them you know he's very much just a an object to them um it's showtime folks yep exactly that show biz um So Joe's in the hospital. For a while, he seems to be doing better, but he is not at all taking care of himself. He's just, like, inviting people in. He's partying. He's hitting on nurses. He's just drinking and smoking every chance he gets. And, yeah, the doctors are like, well, if you're not going to care, why should we care about trying to get you better? Um, And there's that question of, like, does Joe actually want to get better? Like he doesn't seem to accept the fact that he's sick, and he also doesn't seem to care about the idea of maybe he's going to die. He yeah, he, he doesn't seem to be able to settle down and think through this with any sort of seriousness. So the the reviews for his movie come out, his movie about the stand-up comedian come out. It seems like I feel like it's kinda hard to tell whether his movie is actually any good. <laughs> Some of the reviews are positive, like he's shown all the positive reviews and he's like, great, don't show me the bad ones. But then he sees this one bad review on TV and it really seems to get like to the heart for him. And that's the point in which he starts to really take a turn for the worse. Because um, he has, then has to go into surgery. There's this musical number where um, <laughs> the doctors are all introduced and then they don't actually sing. They just like explain what's going on with his heart. <laughs> Um, yeah. And so this is kind of the point in the movie where it really starts to get serious. Um, Joe talks to Katie and he, he's like, I know you were with someone else. And she's like, yes, I was. Um, are we finished? And she's like, I still love you. I don't want us to be finished. And he's like, all right, then we're not finished because I love you too. And But then in the afterlife sequence, Death asks if he means it. And he's like, I don't know. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. Honestly, I can't tell what is the line between truth and lies. I just really wanted to say something nice to her. And she's like, why? And he's just like, I don't know, in case. Which I thought was very... Very revealing. Like, he kind of knows what the right thing to say is, but he there's no meaning behind it whatsoever, you know? Yep. This is now the part at which the halluc- hallucinatory musical numbers start happening in earnest. So there's a long sequence where there's three in a row. Audrey sings this song about... Oh, no, four in a row. Sorry. Audrey sings a song called After You've Gone about how he'll miss her once she's gone. Katie sings, You Better Change Your Ways, which is about how he's killing himself. This whole chorus uh, of dancers sings, Who's Sorry Now? Um, And then Michelle comes and sings about, sings Some of These Days, which is about how he's going to miss his daughter once he's gone. And throughout these whole sequences... um, this whole sequence it's joe sitting in the hospital bed watching all of this but then a second joe who is healthy and who's directing the sequence and he keeps going up to joe in the hospital bed and being like all right say your line now nope you can't say it all right well it's cut all right moving on (laughs) and so it's like this whole you know very much his fevered director brain processing everything that's happened he can't process anything he can't process the idea that he's Feeling remorse for the things he's done or that he wants to apologize to his ex wife and his daughter for the the ways that he hurts them, except in the context of a musical number, do you have any thoughts on these sequences or the way they're filmed, or um the the messages that each one was expressing
1: i I honestly don't really because I was thinking about this while watching it i think I think that they are sequences that are very much so showcasing Fosse's strong or it, his his strengths as a choreographer and, you know, as a as a visionary person and the design and the costumes and all of that. Um, but 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 we've kind of seen that throughout the whole movie. Like, we know that Bob Fosse is a good choreographer and all those things, so it didn't really present much new to me on that front. It was just kind of continuing, like, okay, good editing, good choreography, da 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 um, which it, it was. But anything beyond that, I was kind of like, okay, we're kind of stating the obvious here of, like, okay, of course we're going to have a number with the daughter. Of course we're going to have a number with, you know... the whichever woman this is because I didn't know which woman was <laughs> which woman like it it didn't it's not that they were bad it's just for me I was like I, I I get it I get it and we're spending a long time establishing this so I thought it was interesting to have him kind of sitting there and having another version of himself talking to him while he's in the hospital bed that was kind of the thing that was most intriguing to me um but it was kind of just like Placed a little bit here and there, um, so yeah. I mean, I think they look great, but beyond that, I don't really have much to much to say. I feel like it's a pretty, a pretty, um, like if someone's dying and they're a terrible person and they're reflecting on their actions and how they've affected people around them and all of that. I'm like, okay, of course, there's going to be one about this and one about this and one about this. Um, so at this point, I was honestly kind of just waiting for the movie to be over. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, we next get, um, <clears throat> so Joe survives that surgery, but he suddenly takes a turn for the worse. He's in pain. The nurse can't figure out why, because he, theoretically he just had his medicine. He should be recovering, but he's not. And he escapes, he gets out of his hospital bed, and he starts wandering around the hospital. Um and I found this to be kind of a, a poignant scene. There's the the stand-up's monologue about the different stages of grief that was established earlier is all playing. You know, talk making jokes about the idea of bargaining and denial and uh, everything like that. He goes into this this older woman's room where she's sick, possibly dying, and he tells her that she's the most beautiful person in the world that he's ever seen, and he kisses her, and she closes her eyes afterwards and like did she did she die did she just kill her (laughs) like what happened here um and then finally he ends up in the the cafeteria and he meets up with this guy who i think might be a janitor or maybe he's a like a cafeteria attendant but they're just singing old-timey like show tunes together and having a great time um which i thought was very kind of this little sweet moment that he has he's able to have this moment of connection through you know this medium that he loves musical theater um with this person that he's never seen before and is never going to see again but then he's finally found by the hospital attendants and taken back to his room um thoughts about this this sequence of him wandering through the hospital
1: yeah i this is kind of calling back to what i was saying before in terms of um when we're first introduced to the stand-up in the beginning, it did feel very long. uh. but I liked how it was incorporated later on. I did really like this sequence of him walking around and hearing the overlaid voice of, you know, the themes of the standup special, and especially the part when which was really interesting because the first time we got the full extended sequence of him just screaming, "I'm dying." I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is so annoying when we were just watching the the standup in the beginning. But then seeing it in this sequence, I found it to be really powerful. Um, so I, I I liked how that was included here and how it was edited. Um, I did like the sequence with him um, with with the the guy downstairs as well in the kitchen. I it felt like a it felt like a final moment of Joe being able to be his true self. Like it was nothing but him having a human moment with another person about musical theater, and he got to have a cigarette. Which, in my opinion, cigarettes and musical theater are the biggest loves of his life in in this movie. From what I've seen, uh, and I don't mean that as a joke. Um, I they do feel like the things that he really cares about and and what he's best at more than anything. Um, and so I did I did like that last moment of of seeing him kind of outside of the environment of all of the other toxic people that he has not like that he's abused and created toxicity for or whatever, just having it be him as his true self downstairs with this other guy who knows nothing about him. Theoretically, I don't know. Maybe he knows he's a famous cro- I don't know. Um, it doesn't seem to. But- so. I
0: think he only learned his name when the, the hospital attendants told him that they were looking for him.
1: Yeah. So it, it just, I liked, it was a nice little moment of peace. I think. It felt very peaceful. Um so yeah, I, I did I did like that that kind of progression right there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, and then as he's carried off, he says I think a narrative voiceover. This is just a rough cut. I don't have the titles yet and the underscoring's not in. It's not really finished. I need more time. Which I just found very very poignant. You know, again, kind of like as your mind is fracturing, you just keep going back to the thing that you know and love best, which is creating art um in this case creating movies but that idea again of like i'm dying i suddenly have realized that i have no time left and there are so many things that i want to do you know he in the context of the theater and a and film you know he's always trying to perfect things he's always trying to make them better there's always a second chance you know you can always run a number again or you can always take that take again or um you know you, you can always try and improve things but in life you know, there's no rehearsal. And then the real thing, it's just, you do it once and then it's over with. And it's like, he's
1: YOLO. Yeah. <laughs> like you only live once. Uh-huh.
0: He's never really had to reckon with that until this moment. Um, so yeah, he's lying in bed and then death is sort of like, she dresses him in a sequined outfit and is sort of sponge bathing his skin. And then he's like, In suddenly in this performance that he'd been watching on TV before, Ben Vereen, who's a um, a well-known Broadway actor, I think he's maybe playing not playing himself in this movie, but um, he introduces uh, Joe onto his fake show. But in Joe's mind, it's like this whole hallucinatory number as his you know as he's entering death this is his final farewell to the world and it's this whole huge blowout number it's very sort of 70s 80s you know it's very shiny very tacky kind of um you know very expensive looking it's just so over the top it's very chipper in a way that is so you know intentionally weird and um strange for the subject matter but it's a song called bye bye life and the lyrics are like bye bye life bye bye happiness um farewell uh loneliness i think i'm gonna die
1: isn't it isn't it like oh hello loneliness loneliness, sorry Yeah.
0: yeah yeah it's just like all right i'm off to the great unknown and i'm gonna be alone forever bye so and everyone like you know everyone he knows is in the audience the younger version of himself is in the audience like his his ex-wife his girlfriend his daughter all the producers like just everyone is you know brought back together for this this final song and he's singing he's running up and saying goodbye to them you know he tells his wife like at least i won't have to lie to you anymore and it's just oh gosh it's like everything he wants to say to them but in this weird chipper um mode and everyone's cheering like it's, you know, it's his last performance. You know, it's as if, you know, that idea of a a performer doing their last concert tour and everyone's celebrating them on their way out. It's him creating this kind of final celebration montage to himself in his brain. Um, Yeah. What did you think about this number? It goes, it's very long too, which I mean, I don't know if you felt like it was too long. For me, it just, I I like I think it works because, you know, he's also dragging out his own death <laughs> as as long as possible. Um but yeah, what did what did you think of this number?
1: Yeah, it it was pretty unmemorable for me. I think it's just Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, it's just continuing that thing I said before of like okay, he's this type of person, he's on his deathbed. Of course, he's going to have a song like this from this person and a song like this from like I knew this song was coming. Like I knew there was going to be the final song of him singing to himself about blah, blah, you know? And again, like it looks great. It's shot beautifully. I like the concept of it. It's just, for me, I was like, like I said before at this, like once all the musical numbers started, I was waiting for this movie to be over. And so by the time it got to this part, I was like, okay, I get it. Please. Can we just like be done now? So, um, Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's bad. I just think for me, because the rest of this movie was so unenjoyable, I was just like waiting for it to be over. So I wasn't particularly thrilled by. Fair enough. Like I wasn't entertained. I was like, okay, cool. I get it. Let's move on. And by move on, I mean, can this be over now?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Wow. For me, I mean. This song just randomly pops into my head at at random points in time. This song to me is the thing that makes me really love this movie because I just that idea of so desperately trying to struggle against being brought into death and creating this elaborate, you know, beautiful blowout number that no one is going to see does not actually exist, but, you know, creating your greatest work in your mind and that idea of you know, having a chance to bid farewell to everyone and say the thing that you want to say before you go out. I don't know. I just find it such an evocative and such a relatable feeling. Um, And then there's that incredibly, I, I think I said before, brutal cut to Joe, completely like purple and blue, sitting on a morgue slab being zipped up in a body bag. And it's just perfect in my opinion it's just it's so well timed. it's just a punch in the gut you know it's just so from all the bombast and the music and the lights and everything it's just this is all that's left of his life you know is this hunk of meat (laughs) sitting on a slab getting zipped up in plastic and it's devastating um and then ethel merman starts singing there's no business like show business and it's like yep that's the perfect note to go out on again you know that's sort of like um cheesy chintzy old time showbiz song that's just everything that we love about show business and is also everything that is hollow and destructive about show business and yeah I love the ending of this movie this the ending of this movie to me is you know I I would not love this movie as nearly as much as I do without the way that it ends
1: yeah I mean I don't think this movie could have had another ending I mean I feel like it's kind of like uncut gems you know it's like the inevitability this is the only way this could have ended, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think again, you know, this movie, it asks very interesting questions. And I think that it is, I think that it is a very relatable topic in terms of just meditations on life. And ultimately what is it all for? If, you know, we're just a piece of meat and what sort of legacy do we leave behind? Does any of this matter? You know, I think, um. yeah I mean it's it's very relatable which I think is why so many people find this movie to be so powerful because it is it's kind of I almost feel like this movie is something that all of us want to do like if all of us made a movie we'd be like okay who am I what is my life the good and the bad how have I impacted everyone what does it all mean when I'm dead you know it's a very universally relatable theme that I think you know it is portrayed i think this movie it's portrayed in a very honest way which is why it's admirable um and i think it's all kind of bought, brought to a peak here at the end so i yeah i mean again I, I see why so many people like this movie i just think for me personally because it triggered me in certain very personal ways i wasn't able to get over my own issues with it to really enter into the relatability of this because again like this movie is I feel like universally related because all of us are people that come live and go away. And that's a reality that all of us have to face and all of us have to deal with. At some point we can ignore it for 15 years. We could ignore it for 80. Like we can only avoid it for so long, but eventually we're going to think about it. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think this movie does a really good job of just expressing that in an honest, um, interesting sort of way it's just for me personally because I was so disgusted by everything else I couldn't I couldn't fully get over my own issues to engage with it as much as I wish I would have liked to and as much as it seems like other people are able to Mm -hmm. yeah
0: yeah yeah this movie I mean it's it's one of those movies that like I said it just stuck with me because of all those relatable themes you know it is one of those movies that you end it you're like wow what what are the things that I'm what is not life? Yeah, what is life? <laughs> what are the things that I think I have plenty of time to say to my loved ones, but actually maybe I don't. You know, maybe I need to um be not not be wasting the the life that I have left because I don't know how much there is left. What are the ways that I'm hurting people and that I should, you know, I kind of think I can will get magically fixed in the future, but actually I need to take concrete steps to um to fix now. Like all of these you know really helpful questions i think for any person um alive to be considering now while they still have time um yeah okay so uh let's move on to talk about the awards and the legacy of this movie this movie won four oscars uh best art direction best costume design best film editing very well deserved in my opinion and Best Original Score. It was nominated for five additional other Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Roy Scheider, Best Screenplay, and Best Cinematography.
1: I feel like, mm-hmm. do you have any idea what else was, uh, this was the... nominated for Best Screenplay that year? Because I feel like this movie deserved to win Best Screenplay. Yeah,
0: I agree. Um, I did look this up, actually. Best Screenplay was won by Breaking Away, which um, I actually recommended to you last week. It's a sports movie. It's actually a very good movie from what I remember. It's been a long time since I've seen it, so I can't say off the top of my head that this deserved to win over Breaking Away or Breaking Away deserved to win over this, but um, I did I did really like Breaking Away. But apart from that, um, this was also the year of Kramer versus Kramer, which kind of swept all the other <laughs> categories. So, um, but this movie also did win the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Apparently, Stanley Kubrick saw it and called it the best film I think I have ever seen. Um,
1: sounds like a movie Stanley Cooper called like <laughs> the best movie he's ever seen. That's such a coincidence that I brought up Clockwork Orange. Earlier. Yeah,
0: right? Yeah. Man, what if what if Stanley Kubrick had directed a musical? What do you think that would have been like?
1: I think it would have been like this. Because Stanley Kubrick was also a very problematic person mm-hmm. who made very great art. And I feel like he would, I think it would be this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he would hire Bob Fosse as the choreographer and assign, <laughs> with that collaboration, it would be the same yeah. exact movie. Maybe a little less
0: maximalist, but um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Fascinating. All right. So
0: uh, right now, Metacritic has this movie at 72. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 87%. Um, critics reviews were generally positive, but a little bit mixed from what I've seen at the time. Um, although this movie has obviously kind of, um, continued, if not grown in, um, estimation since a variety review that I found from 1978, when it first came out, called it self-important, egomaniacal, wonderfully choreographed, often compelling film. (laughs) Um, and then I found a review from Chuck Bowen in Slant Magazine. He wrote, this is a very... I thought it, it said some things that I like agree with, but also it's just a very, I don't know, he uses so many, it's a really long sentence and he used a lot of really fancy words that I thought was kind of amusing. He wrote, um... <clears throat> All That Jazz is so head-spinning because it's a deeply felt, deeply stylish, deeply alive movie about disconnection, degradation, and estrangement that abounds in lewd, boozy, intellectualized poetry. The fusion of these various contrasts was Fosse's great specialty, and it's right there, subsumed in the film's Rococo photography, and especially in the amazing dance numbers, which revel in a tone of macabre erotica that contextualizes Joe's narcissism and self aggrandizement aggrandizement vis the vis his sex fantasies and death wishes dying the ultimate stage exit absolves joe of selflessness um so there's i don't know there's a lot to unpick there (laughs) but i i found that an interesting uh quote
1: i feel like that's the type of person where if i were to meet them at a bar and they would start talking i would automatically be like when can i leave this (laughs) conversation (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like that snl sketch like the, the world. You, you wish you hadn't you had to start a started conversation. a conversation with at a bar it is except worse it is way
0: more articulate but um probably even more insufferable um can i uh mm-hmm.
1: can i ask you sure. before we get to our final thoughts what do you think about the title of this movie all that jazz
0: um mm-hmm. yeah because it, it's from I mean there's there's obviously barely sh- any
1: jazz in this movie. <laughs>
0: there's obviously that song in Chicago, all that jazz. I don't know if the title's right. coming from that or if it was kind of more a pre-existing phrase, but and the the phrase is mentioned in the movie. Um I think it's oh, it's the quote that I read at the beginning when he's like um Ben Vereen is like, yeah, he he lost out on uh what's he say? Um, he came to believe that work, show, business, love his whole life, even himself and all that jazz was bullshit. And so it's that kind of I think it does very well in establishing that kind of um, multifaceted view of existence and art that Joe Gideon has in this film has where it's sort of there's the glitz and the glamour of it. But there's also that sense of it's glitz and glamour that's covering up hollowness or ugliness um, and there's that sense that you know you can say look and look at everything and say all that jazz in a very positive way, or you can just kind of dismiss it and say, oh, it's just all that jazz, but it doesn't really mean anything, you know, in the grand sense of scheme of things. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on what it means or or what you think about that title?
1: I mean, I was just thinking about it in, you know. Uh, the general sense of people just kind of say all that jazz to kind of be like okay it's 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 filler it's like mm-hmm. a like you you know what I'm talking about I don't need to yeah. say all the details it's just whatever and uh, I thought it was interesting that he referred to his whole life as just kind of like all that jazz. yeah mm-hmm. it's it just w- whatever um so yeah I just I was I was curious as to um if you had any like deeper thoughts regarding that but that was kind of what what I took, from yeah. It, so,
0: which again is very characteristic of how Joe Gideon characterizes himself in those afterlife sequences. Because I think I mentioned this earlier, but you know, every time death tries to nail him on something that's substantive or any like genuine sense of feeling or care for another person or even about himself, he's just so dismissive of it. He doesn't seem to feel like he is a person who's worth thinking about and he doesn't think that anyone else is a person worth thinking about. All he cares about is work. He has no sort of sense of existence or kind of greater set of moral values or um, um, meaning or purpose to life apart from just doing his work and trying to make it the best that he can. And so, you know, that characterizes his mindset, like to him, all of this is all that jazz. There's there's nothing underneath, you know, there's nothing solid that he can grasp onto. And so as he slips into death, it's just, let me just turn this into one last musical number and then that's it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: All right. Final thoughts. Um, yeah, I do love this movie. It is obviously, as we've talked about many times in this conversation about a very deeply complicated and problematic person. Um, and... I think it's all the more interesting in that it is this own person telling his story and telling it in a very honest way that is also, you know, there's elements of self-justification or contextualization there, but it's also very much like, let me open up my brain and my heart and show you everything that's rotten and false and um, lacking there, and I'll just let you... I'll turn it all into art, but I'll let you, you know, see all of my, see me warts and all. And I think that's really interesting. And, you know, as I said before, I've, I I am really fascinated, I don't know what this says about me, but I am really fascinated by media that deals with the, um, the inevitability of death and how people respond to it and how it, you know, the acknowledgement, you know, the sort of memento mori, you know remember that you are going to die how that changes or doesn't change is change behavior and the the mental processes that people have to do when they acknowledge the fact that they are their time on this this earth is limited um I love the again the the way it's shot and edited. I think it's really creative. Um, I think the script is is very strong and the acting is very good. Um, we didn't really talk much about the performances, but all of them are very good. Roy Scheider, in particular, again one of my favorite actors. I think this is his best performance. So yeah, this is a movie that just it did move me deeply when I saw it before. It's moved me deeply again. That final scene is a gut punch, <laughs> and um, yeah, I. I'm really glad that we had a chance to talk about it even though I know I know it was a difficult watch for you and I apologized for that but um, I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about it.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm glad we did too. I think it was helpful to talk about it. Like if I had just watched this by myself and just been like, well, I guess I'm left alone with my feelings about that, like it would have been <laughs> it would have been a lot worse. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm not going to repeat everything I've already said. Obviously, this is a very offensive movie to me for specifically personal reasons. I don't think it's objectively an offensive movie. I think just personally it's offensive to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are certain things I will remember, obviously like the sex dance <laughs> for better. For I mean, I really like that sequence. I think it's beautiful. I would watch it again. Um, I think, I think it is, a powerful movie with powerful themes. Uh, I wish I had been, I think the main thing I'm going to take away is I wish I had been able to connect with this movie in the way that I know everyone else is, because I see what's there. I see that with a different type of, for lack of a better word, like disgustingness, like if he had been disgusting in another way that wasn't abusing to one to women so consistently, I think I really would have been able to enter in. So I think I'm just bummed that because of my own personal issues <laughs> that I that I can't connect with this movie in the way that I would like. So I guess that's my main takeaway. I'm happy for everyone else who doesn't have those personal issues and is able to appreciate this movie in the way that I believe it deserves to be appreciated. Um, but unfortunately, I'm bummed that I'm unable to get there. So the sex dance is great. <laughs> <laughs> Do you hear that, everyone? The sex dance is great. Tatum.
0: (laughs) Tatum approved. Tatum. Tatum approved. (laughs) All right. Um, Yeah. Well, and thank you for your honesty. You know, I, I don't have those quite the same, you know, like it it doesn't strike me in quite the same particular way as it does you but there are you know as we as you know there are other movies that we've covered where it's like this is very difficult for me specifically so you know we all have those things that are just very difficult to um kind of judge the movie otherwise because certain things stick out too much and kind of subsume the rest of our appreciation and that's okay
1: we're all different I think I think that you and I need to take a good look at the upcoming movies we're talking about because I feel like every single episode for the last like five episodes has been either the other person doesn't like it or I chose a movie and then I was like actually this movie's bad (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) yeah we might need to um reevaluate. On on that similar note, on that um do you want to tell the people what we're going to be covering next week?
1: Yeah, so tentatively right now next week we're talking about Tropic Thunder uh from 2008. It's a movie that I love, but maybe we should have a conversation about it because you and I have very different styles of humor. So if you don't like this movie, we should change it to something else. I've watched
0: um, I think I told you, I started to watch this movie and then I turned it off cuz I wasn't really liking it so I don't know we can talk about it
1: yeah we'll figure it out so hey guys it's a wild card uh yeah. so we'll keep you on the edge of your seats <laughs> maybe next week we'll talk about something totally different so uh yeah you guys will just have to wait in suspense until then I know, a whole <laughs> week a whole week good luck <laughs> go watch the worst person in the world Ooh. while you wait okay. all right well it's streaming on hulu check it out Yeah, it is.
0: Hulu, got some good stuff. All right. So thanks, everybody, for listening, for making it this far. And hope to see you all next week when we maybe talk about Tropic Thunder or maybe talk about something else.
1: At this point, I feel like probably not. So, uh, yeah. Okay, bye. (laughs)
0: Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time.